If you've got your Bibles, we're in Revelation chapter 4, and this is called The Rapture of the Church, part 2 of 2. Looking at what the rapture is, when it happens, other scriptural references, and so we get a good idea of what it is and a biblical reason to believe that. And also, I'm going to delve into resurrection a bit this week and explain what resurrection is because we talk about getting resurrection bodies and stuff so just explain more about just resurrection in general as well first i've made this little graphic up that's as simple as i can get it to only show just the people who are alive at the time and where they go so i'll just run through it quick you got the people who are alive before the rapture and if they're a believer, they go up to heaven, the pre-tribulation rapture. And if they're not, they go into the tribulation. Now, they break off into four different groups of people. You've got the Gentile unbelievers and Gentile believers. And you've got the Jewish unbelievers and the Jewish believers. And you've got two different judgments at the end of the tribulation. And the Gentile believers and the Gentile unbelievers go into the sheep and goat judgment. And the unbelieving Gentiles are cast into Hades, or hell. But the sheep, the believers, enter the kingdom with mortal bodies and they have kids. And some of the children born to them in the kingdom will choose not to believe. And they will join Satan in his rebellion, the final war against Jesus. And they'll be judged along with all the people from Hades at the great white throne judgment. So that's a what they call the second resurrection. And the Jews, they have a separate judgment at the end of the tribulation. Again, it appears that the unbelievers are cast into Hades and then the believers, they go through into the kingdom, a thousand year rule and reign. They have mortal bodies, they have children, they repopulate the earth along with the Gentile believers. As well as them, in the millennial kingdom, we have the church, with glorified bodies, we have the resurrected Old Testament believers with glorified bodies, and we have the resurrected tribulation believers with glorified bodies. And the Old Testament believers and the tribulation believers receive the resurrection body at the end of the tribulation period. That's what it says in Daniel about the Old Testament believers there. So, so the people with mortal bodies at the end of the millennial period they get their glorified bodies, and we all go into the eternity, new heavens, new earth, and anyone who's not a believer from any dispensation, from any time period, they go to the lake of fire, second death, eternal torment. So last week we saw that chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 are the turning point in the book of Revelation, and as we said, if we compare it to a screenplay or a script, it's a plot point, it's a complete turning point in the message that the book of Revelation presents. And how do we know? Well, you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, which is the outline for the book. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And the words for after this are Meltatelta. Very good. And they mean after these things. So chapter 1 is the things you have seen. That's Jesus revealing himself to John, the Apostle John. Chapters 2 and 3, the church age, the things which are. And then, the last part of verse 19, and the things which will take place after this. So after what? What's he just been talking about? The church age, okay. So, the things which are. So, the church age must end before the next stage can begin. That's the way I see it. So, the church age must end before the tribulation can begin. The church age only ends when the church is removed. Now, let's read Revelation 4, 1 and 2 together. After these things, Metatelta, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, after these things. So, I'll just read verse 1 for now. So, after this, Metatelta, this is the key word that shows us when things change. We should be thinking, well, Metatelta is written twice in chapter 4. 
verse 1. I've read that back in chapter 119 where it's the key, it's the verse that tells us how revelation unfolds or is broken up. So what is going to happen after the church age? It's the tribulation. And before that starts, we have this thing saying, come up here. Jesus is saying, come up here. So here's why we get the idea of the church being caught up to heaven before the tribulation starts. It's because Jesus says, come up here. And also the trumpet. We'll get into that in a minute. And last week we started looking at other passages in the New Testament that also refer to the rapture. And that's basically what the rapture is, is that some of those who believe and live will never die. So we'll get a resurrection body without dying. That's what the rapture is. We get a resurrection body without having to die. So we're going to keep looking at other New Testament references to the rapture, what it is and when it happens. And I just want to remind you that there's other points of view. I'm not saying I'm definitely correct. I'm just saying this is what I believe. I'm giving the reasons why I believe it. And it's up to you to put Acts 17.11 into practice and search the scriptures daily to see if what I'm saying is true. So I'm just going to go with the main verse that talks about the rapture to start with, and that's 1 Thessalonians 4.15-18 to to remind us of what we're talking about. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Remember that asleep is the word for Christian death. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So here is the great snatch, when God by stealth takes us away. That's what that word caught up means. It means to take away. It can mean violently too, but in this case, or like the release of hostages, the regaining of hostages back into their homeland. So we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. So there's going to be a generation that doesn't die. Most people are going to die or have died, or everyone up to this point has died, except a couple of people in the Bible, and they will get resurrected. All the people who die in the church age will get resurrected at the rapture as well. They'll receive their resurrection bodies then. Now, I'm going to take a step back, and we're talking about resurrection. What is resurrection? We are talking about the rapture and how we get our resurrection bodies. So let's just learn what the Bible says about resurrection bodies and why we actually need resurrection bodies or glorified bodies. And I thought, we haven't actually answered that question yet. Why do we need a glorified body? Well, I'm going to go through a fair bit of 1 Corinthians 15 and the section before the part in 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about the rapture he talks about resurrection. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read from verses 42 to 50. So this is talking about the resurrection, our resurrection bodies. So it is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. And then in verse 45, the scriptures tell us, the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, and then the spiritual body comes later. So we're born with a natural body, and the spiritual body is our resurrection body. It comes later. Adam the first man was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ the second man came from heaven. So we're all born with this fleshly body, 
but we're going to get a body like Jesus had when he rose from the dead. So verse 48, Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. I like that. Just like Jesus was when he rose again and his glorified body, we will someday be like the heavenly man. We're going to have the same kind of glorified body that Jesus has. He was the first fruits. He was the first one to receive this kind of glorified body. And verse 50, What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever, or these mortal bodies cannot inherit what is immortal. So I love looking at this contrast between our mortal human flesh and blood body and our new resurrection or glorified or spiritual body. One dies, the other lives forever. One is broken, one is glorious. One is weak, one is strong. One is natural, one is spiritual. The natural comes first, the spiritual comes later. And a new body is the same as Jesus' glorified or spiritual body. And just pay attention to verse 50. It says, What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. And this is the reason we need a new body. My soul and my spirit need something to live in. My body is my way of communicating to other people. But the body I'm living in now is no good for living in heaven. It's not going to last forever. So I need a new one. Now, some people say, oh, it's a spiritual body. It's actually just a body designed to live in the spiritual realm. It's actually going to be a physical body, but just one designed to live in heaven and to live for eternity. For example, Jesus' glorified body. He could eat, drink. You could put your finger in his scars. You could touch him, give him a hug. They clung to him. He was a physical person, but he wasn't a flesh and blood physical person. It was some other type of physical makeup. Now, I've got no idea what it is, but it's pretty awesome because even though he was physical, he could eat, you could touch him, he could just walk through walls and he could just disappear at will. So I reckon our new bodies will be multidimensional. We can just go at the speed of thought. That's just my view. Now, another thing about the resurrection is that it only applies to our physical bodies. You do realize that we are a triune being, body, soul, and spirit. And all three parts of us need to be redeemed. Okay, All three parts, our body, our soul, and our spirit. So think of it this way. Redemption is a three-stage process. My spirit has already been redeemed when I was born again, and that's what we call being justified. My soul is being redeemed. It started the day I was born again, and it will be completed either the day I die or I am raptured, and that's called sanctification. So I am being sanctified. So my spirit has been justified. And my soul is being sanctified. Now the third one is my body, and that will be redeemed at the rapture. So no one has a redeemed body yet. No one has a redeemed body yet. All New Testament believers, the church, will get their new bodies, their resurrection bodies, at the rapture. And that's what the Bible means when it says, we will be glorified. We will be glorified. It means we're going to get our resurrection body. So I'm going to just keep reading on in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58. The verses we just read from 1 Corinthians show us that we need a new body to live forever in heaven, for our soul and spirit to live in. That's how God has made us. And Paul is now going to tell us some great news about how it's going to happen. So he's talked about 
resurrection body. Now he's talking about how we're going to get it. How does it happen? He starts off by saying in verse 51, in 1 Corinthians 15, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret, or in the New King James, a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are still living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Verse 54 Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless or ever in vain. So here we have it. Finally, death will be defeated. Pretty amazing, hey? The resurrection is all about overcoming death. Did you know that we're all born with a fear of death? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, it says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he, listen to this, could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. That's a powerful verse, isn't it? So Jesus came as a man, because only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. We were condemned by our sin. That's what that means. We were condemned by our sin. Sin must be punished. But Jesus, when he died, he took the punishment for our sins. Now we're no longer condemned. We're free. Death no longer has any power over us. And therefore, we don't have to live as slaves to the fear of dying. Now think of Adam and Eve. They sinned. God kicked them out of the garden. But before he did, they made themselves coverings of leaves, plant coverings. They made their own type of covering to hide their shame, their nakedness. But what did God do? God killed an animal. So picture yourself as being Adam and Eve, and he's doing this for them. And there's a lamb there, or maybe a sheep. Maybe it's got to be a bit bigger than a lamb if he's going to clothe them with the skins. Maybe it was more than one animal, probably more than one animal. Who knows? But they are kind of shocked. I reckon they would be definitely very, very shocked when God kills some of these innocent animals. They have never seen death before. So in that simple action of killing, of God killing the animal, Adam and Eve saw the consequences of their sin and they understood that their sin caused the death of an innocent substitute. That makes sense? Their sin caused the death of an innocent substitute. And it was a substitute of God's choice. The plant coverings would not cut it. They would not be enough. There must be the shedding of blood for there to be forgiveness of sins. Their sin caused death. And we inherit this basic fear of death because we know, and even if we don't admit it, that sin brings judgment. It's the condemnation. 
But Jesus Christ willingly climbed up on the cross and died in my place, in your place. And he took the penalty of every sin we will ever commit when he died in our place. And he did it when he knew that most of the world would never thank him for it, acknowledge him, or even many would not receive the gift that he gave his life to give. Imagine knowing or having the foreknowledge that Jesus had and loving someone enough to die for them, pay for their sins, knowing that they would never even receive it. That's love. That's Romans 5.8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So everybody has the opportunity to receive this pardon, to receive this gift of forgiveness, to have our sins taken away, being paid for, our fine being paid. So this is the hope of the resurrection. God has broken sin's power over us and defeated death when Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins and then rising again. We literally have nothing to fear. And the more we learn about who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ, the less we will fear death. It doesn't matter if we die or are raptured, we will still be resurrected. We still receive our resurrection body. So I'm just so thankful for God's goodness and his grace, what he's done for us. And what is the application that Paul gives after going through this wonderful teaching about the resurrection and then the rapture and how some won't die but will have their bodies transformed into their resurrection body without dying? It's verse 58 there in 1 Corinthians 15. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. So, no matter how hard things get, this is what gives us the motivation to keep going. It's the hope of the resurrection. When we get our new bodies and live forever with God and receive reward for all our labors done for Christ that we're motivated by love. So, we have a glorious future. So never give up on serving the Lord. Now, I'm just going to come back to 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52. And this gives us a lot of insight into the rapture. So just read those two verses again. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret, a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. So some people will die. And some people won't die, but we will all be transformed. We'll all receive our resurrection body. And it will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. That means their bodies will be raised to live forever, because their spirit and soul are already in heaven. And we who are living will also be transformed. Our bodies will be transformed. So let's pull this apart a little bit. It says in verse 51, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret or mystery. What does the New Testament mean by mystery or wonderful secret, as it says in the New Living Translation? Well, a mystery in the New Testament means something that has not yet been revealed by God in his progressive revelation of himself, his purposes and plans to man. So basically, it's not in the Old Testament. It's never been revealed in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you an example of another mystery, another thing that was revealed only in the New Testament as part of the New Covenant, part of the Age of Grace. Colossians 1.27 To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now the Old Testament prophets, they had no idea that in the New Testament, or after Christ died and rose again, that the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, will be living, literally living inside of us, that we'll be temples of the Holy Spirit. It was a brand new idea that was revealed as part of the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came upon a relatively few people, and usually only those in leadership, and then it was only temporary. So, coming back to... Uh, verses in 1 Corinthians where we look at the rapture of the church it says 
what is the mystery here that Paul is talking about? He says in verse 51, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. This mystery. He's going to reveal to us this mystery. What is it? Well, it says the very next sentence, We will not all die, sleep, but we will all be transformed or changed. So in the New King James, it uses the word sleep, and in the Greek it's the word sleep, and the New Testament consistently uses the word sleep to refer to a Christian who has died. So the mystery is that there's going to be some people who will not die, but will have their body transformed or changed into their resurrection body. That's the mystery. That's this thing that was never revealed in the Old Testament. And it's going to happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. And what is the moment? That moment there is the word atom. And basically, it's a time period so short that you can't break it down anymore. It's immeasurable. So this mystery is not the resurrection. The mystery that Paul is revealing is the rapture, where people are going to be taken straight to heaven without dying. And as they go there, as they're taken up, they will instantly be transformed. Now, I just want to take you back to the Old Testament and just prove to you that people already knew about the resurrection of the body. Job, Job chapter 19, verses 26 to 27. Job is speaking. Remember, he's suffering. Satan is tempting him, God is testing him. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So, in my flesh I shall see God. So, Job understood there would be a physical resurrection. So again, the mystery is that there are some living now who will also be transformed. We will not all die, and we who are living will also be transformed. It's not just those who have died will get their resurrection bodies, but some who are living will get their resurrection bodies. It's awesome. Now, in verse 51, when it says, we will all be changed or transformed, have you heard the word metamorphosis? When a caterpillar metamorphosed into a beautiful butterfly. It's a change that happens. And you know what happens? The whole caterpillar just kind of goes into this goo and it rebuilds itself into this butterfly. <laughs> and the new butterfly is made up of the old components of the caterpillar but has no similarities with the original structure. So it's going to be similar for us. We're going to be recognizable as who we are, but the structure of our bodies is going to be completely different. And it says there, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. This is verse 53. So all believers will go through a glorious change at the coming of Jesus Christ for his church, just like an ugly caterpillar is transformed into a beautiful butterfly. Now, one place where people get stuck here is where it says in verse 52, when the last trumpet is blown. Now the reason for the confusion is that there are a series of seven judgments in Revelation called the trumpet judgments, which are towards the end of the tribulation. So what some people try and do is link this scripture, when the last trumpet, that the rapture will happen at the last trumpet, and they say that it's the last trumpet of the seven trumpet judgments. And therefore they say that the rapture happens towards the end of the tribulation. And if this is true, it would mean that the church would go through the tribulation. But I want to try and show you why I don't believe that's true. And there's a couple of problems with this. I'm going to show you what they are. So the first problem is that the seven trumpet judgments in Revelation, the trumpets are blown by angels. So you read the scriptures there in Revelation, round about chapter 8, and it's angels who are blowing these trumpets. But the trumpet 
concerning the rapture, if you read First Thessalonians 4.16, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So it's the trumpet of God. God is blowing this trumpet. The trumpet of the rapture is not that of an angel. It's the trumpet of God. Jesus himself will blow this trumpet and not an angel. Now, another reason why I don't think that the rapture happens when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet during the tribulation is because of this. After the fourth angel sounds his trumpet, a voice shouts in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. And then chapter 9, verse 12, it says, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Wow. So, a woe is something that's really bad. It's, whoa, watch out, this is terrible. But the rapture is not terrible, it's a glorious thing. So it just doesn't fit. Firstly, at the rapture, it's God playing the trumpet. It's God's trumpet, not the angel's trumpet. And it's described here, these seven trumpet judgments, where the angels blow these trumpets, it's described as woes. It's, oh, woe to the earth for all these terrible things that are coming, these curses, these judgments. It doesn't make sense that a glorious event will be called a woe. So, if there is a last trumpet, and it's not one of the angels sounding it during the tribulation, then what was the first trumpet? That's a good question, isn't it? Would you like to know what the first trumpet is? Well, as best as I can tell, in Exodus 19, God sounded the first trumpet when the Jews were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai to hear the law. If you read in Exodus there, there was this trumpet blast and it got louder and louder and louder. So, if you read scripture, I'm pretty sure that's the first time that God blew a trumpet. So, God sounded the first trumpet when the Jews were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai to hear the law. And the last trumpet will sound when the church is gathered to meet the Lord in the air and taken to heaven. So there's only two times, the first and the last. Thus the Jews hear the first trumpet and the church hears the last. So one of the reasons I've gone through these verses in Corinthians that talk about the rapture is because when you look back at Revelation 4, 1-2, it parallels these verses. So after these things, Metatelta, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, Metatelta. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So the parallels between John chapter 4 and the rapture verses in the New Testament, it's a trumpet. Okay. Secondly, it's instantaneous, where it says immediately. We learned about that last week. And we go from earth to heaven and we stand before the Lord Jesus. As we get into chapter 4, we're going to realize, we're going to learn that we're actually standing not just before the Father, but before the Lord Jesus. And the verses about the rapture says to be with the Lord forever. Now, another problem. Moving on to something a little bit different here. Another problem that people have with the pre-tribulation rapture is who is the elect? Because if you read this verse here in Matthew 24, 21-22, guess what it says? For then there will be great tribulation. So we know this is the tribulation period. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. 
So what happens is that people say, well, God in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, calls the church his elect. And here, in the tribulation, but for the elect's sake, these days will be shortened. So what's the problem here? Why is that a bad interpretation? Well, there's three groups of people who are referred to as the elect. And it depends on the context as to which group of people you're talking about. So, for example, Isaiah 45, verse 4, God calls Israel his elect. Colossians 3.12, so the church is his elect. And then you've got these people in the tribulation. Who are they? Well, are they Israel or are they the church? Well, I believe the church isn't going to be there. But is there proof in the scriptures that gives us an indication? Is there an indication in the scriptures? I think there is. If you go back to the previous verse, Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, it gives you a big hint. It says, And pray that your flight may not be in the winter, or, what does it say? On the Sabbath. Does the church keep the Sabbath? No, we don't. The Gentiles don't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a covenant between Israel and God. And we know that the temple is going to be set up. They're going to be keeping the law again. So this is referring to the Jews. It's not the church. So the context of that passage in Matthew chapter 24 is the elect as referring to the Jews, not the church, based on the context of that. Now, to conclude our study on the rapture, I'm going to go through 10 or 11 reasons why I believe the trumpet God will sound before the tribulation. That Jesus will come and take away the church before the tribulation starts. So most of this we've already covered. So this is like a revision of what we've done in the last couple of weeks, this week and last week. So number one, the doctrine is to be a comforting one. The doctrine of the rapture is to be a comfort, is to bring comfort. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4.18. It says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I think that the belief that the rapture happens after or in the middle of the tribulation is anything but comforting. Because it means believers must endure unbelievable agony before they are taken to heaven. And did you realize that as you read through, that three quarters of the earth's population will die? There's 7.8 billion people alive today. I looked it up on the internet today. So three quarters of that is almost 6 billion people dead. Now we're complaining about a, you know, a few hundred thousand dying of COVID. It's going to be even worse for those who believe during the tribulation as Satan will be given authority to make war with and overcome the saints that is, the tribulation saints during the tribulation period. And that's in Revelation 13, verse 7. It says, It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, think of it this way. If the rapture doesn't happen before the tribulation, then there will be precious few people to be raptured, as most would have been killed. So, telling the church to take comfort in the rapture if they're going to go into the tribulation, would be telling, it'd be like telling the Jews to take comfort because they're going to go through the Holocaust. There's no comfort in going through the Holocaust. There's no comfort in going into the tribulation. It's the same thing. It's intense torture and suffering. You know, it's okay, Jews, take comfort. A few of you will be rescued at the end. No, it's not comforting. Not in my eyes, anyway. And this is why we need to get moving and be warning people about this coming judgment, the seven-year tribulation. It's not going to be nice, and we don't want the people we love to go into that. We do everything we can to get them saved before that happens, before we get raptured, because everyone else will go in to the tribulation. Now, the second reason. So the first one was, it's about comfort. The doctrine of the rapture is designed, or God's given up, to us, to comfort us. 
Secondly, Jesus, and this is related to what I've just said, Jesus said that the gates of Hades shall not prevail or overcome the church. And that's Matthew 16, 18. And it says, talking to Peter, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So, you might say, well, the church is being persecuted. Well, that's true. But what happens when the church is persecuted? It grows. It's like the children of Israel in Egypt. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And that's what it means for the gates of Hades not to overcome or be victorious over the church. The church is going to continue to grow despite what Satan tries to do to it. However, if the church really does go through the tribulation and the Antichrist is given authority to make war against and to overcome the saints, and if the church is there and the church is the saints, then it contradicts what Jesus said in Matthew 16:18, because the tribulation saints were basically wiped out with God's permission. So God is saying the gates of Hades will not overcome, and then he's saying, actually, well, I'm giving Satan permission to overcome you now. No, it doesn't make sense. It's so bad in the tribulation that God allows the believers to be killed because it's such a horrible time to live. It's better to die than to stay alive. The martyred tribulation saints will be spared the horrors of the tribulation and will receive comfort when they go to be with Jesus. Number three, the tribulation is the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb and God has not appointed us to wrath. And the verses of this are Revelation 6, 15-17 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11. So, first, let's see where the Bible says that the tribulation is the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb or the wrath of God. And we find that in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15-17. to This is during one of the judgments and you're going to find this is quite interesting what the world is saying this is what the world is saying the unbelievers then everyone the kings of the earth the rulers the generals the wealthy the powerful and every slave and every free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they cried to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? Their wrath, the Father, the Son. The throne room in heaven, you've got the Father and the Son. And he's opening the seals. And then there's a trumpet judgment, and there's a vile judgment. This is the wrath of God being poured out onto an unbelieving world. Now, is there a scripture that tells us that we can expect to be delivered from this or taken away from this so we don't have to go through it? Well, guess what? I think there is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11. Here we go. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that means he took our punishment, that, look at this, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we wake and he's go up at the rapture or sleep, that means we die as a Christian, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Isn't that cool? That whether we wake, that is we go up, or sleep, that means we die, We should live together with him in our glorified resurrection bodies. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. This is where the comfort comes in. So, the wrath that should have been hurled at me and poured out on me was absorbed by my Saviour, my Hero, my Lord and Saviour on the cross at Calvary. And the same for you. The trials and tribulations we now face in the church age are not from God. They are from Satan. He is our accuser. He is the one who's out to kill, steal and destroy. He is our enemy. However, 
in the tribulation, it would be God bringing judgments on the earth for the purpose of judging the unbelievers. The tribulation will be God punishing unbelievers. God pouring out his wrath and judgment on an unbelieving world. So 1 Thessalonians here, these verses we just read, 5, 9-11, is God showing us, I believe, that we have not only been saved from the lake of fire, but also from God's wrath being poured out in the tribulation. There's no good reason why the church should go into that tribulation. Now, number four. The rapture before the tribulation is illustrated as a type in Genesis 19, where we see angels delivering Lot and his family before the destruction of Sodom. The key here is that Abraham said to God, Surely you won't judge the righteous with the wicked, because this judgment was a judgment of the wicked, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Peter picks this up in 2 Peter 2, 7-9. It says, But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. So, trials is tribulations, the same word. God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. The tribulation is a judgment on the wicked, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, number five. Jesus told us to pray that we'll be raptured before the tribulation. Now, we finished on this scripture last week, so I'll just read it to you, just to remind you. Jesus, speaking in the Olivet Discourse, he says in Luke 21.36, Watch therefore and pray always, that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And again, how are we accounted worthy? Only one way. We are worthy because of what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. Number six, the pre-tribulation rapture makes sense historically and scripturally. And we went through this last week as well. It's John 14, 1-3. I'll just read those verses to you, but I'm going to expand on it this week. John 14, 1-3 Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to come and take us to be with himself. Now, what's the Jewish custom? That Jesus was referring to here. If you go back and you understand that the Bible is a Jewish book, if you understand the customs, it really does come alive. In accordance with the Jewish custom, when a man came of age to marry, he would add a room onto his father's house for himself and his bride. When the addition was complete, like when the room was complete, and when the father gave the go-ahead, a trumpet would sound and the bridegroom would go to meet his bride. Following the wedding ceremony, the bridegroom would take his bride to his father's house, and they'd be tucked away for seven days in the newly completed bridal suite, the newly completed room that the husband had been preparing for his bride. And then at the end of seven days, the bridegroom would come out with his bride and introduce her to the community. Now. What's going to happen with the church? This is a beautiful picture. Jesus, our bridegroom, is preparing a place for us in heaven. It's his father's house, John 14, 2. At the appointed time, known only by the Father, a trumpet will sound and Jesus will meet us, his bride, in the air to escort us up to the bridal suite he has prepared for us, so to speak. We will remain with him in heaven for seven years before we are presented to the world when we will rule and reign with him.
Now, there's more details in that type in that picture, and it's really good, but I'm leaving it that for today. But it's just really an amazing thing, the Jewish tradition there, that custom. And Jesus seems to be referring to that when he's talking about this. Now, number seven, a pre-tribulation rapture follows the outline of the book of Revelation. I'm going to quote from John Corson here. If you don't embrace a pre-tribulation view, your understanding of Revelation becomes as twisted as a pretzel <laughs> because you've got to put chapters 4 and 5 after chapter 11. If you hold to a mid-tribulation stance and if you hold to a post-tribulation point of view, you have to move it to after chapter 19. Only a pre-tribulation placement of the rapture allows for a consistent flow of the book of Revelation. And number eight, a pre-tribulation rapture allows for the conditional aspect of the tribulation. I'll say that again. A pre-tribulation rapture allows for the conditional aspect of the tribulation. Now, that means that if you do something, then this will happen. Okay, And if you don't, then something else will happen. It's conditional on you doing something. So, the verse here is Revelation chapter 2, verse 22. And the context is Jesus talking to the church of Thyatira. And he's basically saying, if you don't repent, you will experience or go into the tribulation. Okay? So Revelation 2.22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, if the rapture won't occur until after the tribulation, then this warning that Jesus gives doesn't make sense. Jesus is saying to this church, which will continue until the end of the church age, that if the people in your church who continue with this false doctrine, who don't repent, they will go into the tribulation. But those who do repent, they won't go through the tribulation. Again, I just talked about this a little bit before. Some people will say, well, didn't Jesus say in this world we will have tribulation? But as we said before, the crushing the believer goes through in this world is from Satan. But the tribulation of chapter 6 to 19, on the other hand, is from God as he pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. So God is fair and will not allow anyone to get hit from both sides. If we experience tribulation in the world because of our faith, then we will not experience the tribulation of those who do not have faith. So the rapture is there for those of us who are Christian, who are born again, who suffer for the sake of the gospel, and he will rescue us out. And those who have refused to repent will then go into the tribulation. Right, the ninth reason, the pre-tribulation rapture allows for the unknown time of the Lord's return. Now, a verse here, there's a few like this, that tell us that we don't know the day or the hour of the Lord's return. But this is just one. First Thessalonians 5.2 For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when the rapture is going to happen. It's talking about that. But the second coming of Jesus, when he actually steps down on the earth, we know exactly when that's going to be. According to Daniel's prophecy, three and a half biblical years, and that's one year being 360 days. So three and a half years from the day the Antichrist enters the temple and demands that the world worship him, that's halfway through the tribulation. Three and a half years from that point, 1,260 days, Jesus comes back physically to the earth. So we know we can predict the exact time of the second coming. Once the Antichrist signs that covenant with Israel, that peace treaty, and then the desolation of the temple, we know exactly when Jesus comes back. So here we have this discrepancy. 
if the rapture happens at the end or in the middle, then you know when it's going to happen. But the Bible says we don't know. So it makes sense that it happens at the start before the tribulation happens. And there's an example here. It's an American example because I couldn't think of an Australian one that was similar. But in America they have Thanksgiving in November. I think it's the 25th of November. And then Christmas is a month later on the 25th of December. So when the Christmas decorations were started to be put out, I can't remember who said this, but this one pastor saying, I get really excited because I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. And his wife said, but hang on a second, these are Christmas decorations. Yes, I know that, but Thanksgiving happens before Christmas. So if Christmas is coming, then Thanksgiving is even sooner. And the tenth reason that I believe the tribulation happens after or starts after the rapture is that the tribulation is not for the church, it's for Israel. And I've got a couple of verses to help support that view. And it's Deuteronomy 4, 30-31. It says, In the distant future, or in different versions, the latter days. And when it talks about that, it's talking about end times. When he uses those words, latter days. Okay, so in the distant future, when you are suffering all these things, you will finally return to the Lord your God and listen to what he tells you. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant he made with your ancestors. So what's he saying? In the distant future, when you are suffering all these things, when you're going through this difficult time, you will finally return to the Lord. The Lord is merciful. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget or break or disregard the solemn covenant he made with the ancestors referring to Abraham. So another scripture is Jeremiah 30 verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is a time of whose trouble? Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. Who's going to be saved out of it? Jacob. Israel. So, in the Old Testament, the tribulation is referred to as a time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation, it's twofold purpose. One is to judge an unbelieving world. Second purpose is to awaken Israel. It's to wake them up. It's to refine them. And there's scriptures in the Old Testament that make that clear. God has not forgotten Israel. He is going to keep his promises. And next week we'll learn more about that as we learn about the seven years. These scriptures are telling us that he will make himself known to them and they shall indeed be saved. Now, the last and final reason I believe is the most important one for me personally, and the scripture I'm going to read for this one is Matthew 24, 42 to 47. A pre-tribulation rapture makes it much easier to seek first the kingdom. And I'll explain what that means as I go through. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Again, this whole thing about we don't know the day of the hour. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Again, reinforcing what we said before, we're going to add to this. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds a servant has done a good job, there will be reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. And then it goes on to say the opposite as well. So who is the one who will have authority and purpose in eternity? It's the one who is watching for Jesus coming.
I believe it's much more difficult for those who believe, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's more difficult for those who believe the tribulation comes before the rapture. Why? Because they're not looking directly for Jesus to come back because the Antichrist has to come first and the rebuilding of the temple and the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist immensely worshipped as God. So if you have a pre-tribulation understanding of the rapture, then you know and you're expecting that Jesus could come at any time and there are no prophecies that need to happen first. There's nothing that needs to happen before the rapture happens. Whereas for all those other things, there's other things that must happen first. Okay, the temple's got to be rebuilt, Antichrist has got to sign the covenant, all those things. So I just want to finish with this thought. There's two things that kept the early church on fire. One was the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and the second is the belief that Jesus would return during their lifetime. Guess what? They were actually worried sometimes they'd miss the rapture. They say, are we in the tribulation? Life's really tough at the moment. Now, you might say, but he didn't come back in that day, did he? No, but that's not the point. Because they lived as though he was going to, they lived their life seeking him. Not putting their roots down in this world, but living lightly. Keeping their eyes on the eternal. I want you to think about this. These early believers, they're in heaven now. They're saying something like, I guess, we didn't get bogged down in materialism or trivial pursuits. We sought the Lord. We witnessed fervently. We lived for the kingdom. Now, if only we knew he wasn't coming in our life, then we could have worked more and bought a bigger house. Do you reckon they're saying that now? Or do you reckon they're quite happy that they spent their life serving the Lord? No, they've got no regrets. Okay? So this expectation, he might not come in our lifetime. That's okay. But if I'm expecting him to come, man, I'm going to be wanting to be found doing what he wants me to do. All those parables that Jesus gives in the New Testament there, in the Gospels, about being ready, about watching. So whether or not you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture will not affect your salvation. It won't affect where you end up. If you're a believer, you'll be in heaven no matter what position you hold. But your viewpoint concerning the rapture very definitely affects how you live life on this side of eternity. It makes it easier I believe, to have this expectation that Jesus would come. And that means that you're keeping yourself pure. It makes it easier to keep yourself pure. I'm going to come back to a verse that talks about that. So again, what happens when you believe that the rapture happens after or during the tribulation? Well, you're looking for the Antichrist. I mean, I don't really care about the Antichrist because I don't believe I'm going to be here. You know, I study the scriptures, but I'm not, what's that word, when you're consumed by something? I'm not consumed with looking for the Antichrist. Another thing that happens is that people who, are, who think they're going to go through the tribulation, they have this survivalist mentality. Oh, we're going through the tribulation. They say, we better get ready. Now, is that what Jesus meant? Does he want us storing up golden guns? <laughs> Or does he want us living every day in hopeful anticipation that today could be the day that we get to go to heaven? So I'm just going to read a verse to finish. It's 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation, will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. i read that last verse again, then we'll pray. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure.
So, Father, help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be, Lord, understanding that you could come, the rapture could happen at any time, I believe. And because of that, we need to be ready, like those parables. We need to be ready. The foolish virgins, the landowner going away and leaving the servants there. Lord, the message is we need to be ready because we don't know when the master's going to come back. We don't know when the bridegroom is going to sound that trumpet. We need to be ready. So help us to have that expectation to be thinking about your soon or sudden return. You could come back any time. There's no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled. Nothing else has to happen. We just need to wait. And the scriptures say it will happen not soon, but suddenly. So when it does happen, it will happen quickly. So we just pray that you will keep our eyes on you, as it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and laying aside every weight that slows us down and the sin that so easily entangles us. And we will run the race, keeping our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Pray you'll strengthen us today and help us to to live for you 100%, to be fully committed to you, fully devoted to you. And regardless of our stance on when the rapture happens, Lord, that we could be seeking you, growing in you, loving you more, and building each other up, we pray, in our holy faith. In Jesus' name, amen.